All right, as they are returning to their seats and we are about to begin our service sermon, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 15. As we continue our study of this book and we come to what is one of the more cringe-inducing passages in, in the Bible where, where Jesus says and does something that makes us feel uncomfortable. Indeed, a little scandalous. What's going on here? Well, hopefully that's what we'll start talking about today. Uh, I will advise you that my sermon uh, outline, because I always write an I write a, a manuscript and then I distill it down to an outline. My outline is five pages long. And this is a, and this is a, a, a communion Sunday. So I'm not going to abuse you, okay? So we're going to get to a good, and then next week you can come and hear the punchline. Sound fair? Okay, all right. So let's go ahead and look, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 39, the apostle, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, and the word is actually prostrated. She prostrated herself before him, saying, Matthew, Mark has her begging, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, 
Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Brothers and sisters, even this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage even this passage, and we ask that you would bless our time of studying it. Be pleased, O oh God, to grant that we, even we, would see our desperate need and that you are the great provider to meet every need. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, this is... Uh, like I said before, I read the scriptures. This is one of the more uncomfortable things that Jesus does. This, 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 is a, this is a controversial action on the part of Jesus, the way he interacts with this woman. Um, what's going on here? Well, we're, we're going to get to that. Note that I said last week that at this point we have entered his third and final year of ministry. Jesus is, in this third year, he's, he's, things have kind of come to a head with the religious leaders. He's thoroughly uh, denounced them so far in, in the earlier part of this chapter, telling people explicitly not to follow the religious leaders. So he's kind of come out, and, and now in the third year, though he does make public appearances, nonetheless, the bulk of the year is spent relatively out of the limelight, and he's teaching his disciples. He focuses on his disciples in this past, in this last year. And even in the text of Matthew, you can see the passing of time. So, for example, if you look at Matthew 14, verse 19, just the, the preceding chapter, during the feeding of the 5,000, which is the, the climactic event of his second year of ministry that results in many people wanting to crown him as king by force. The little, the little note in the text in verse 19 of that chapter is that Jesus tells them to sit on the grass. Here, when he feeds the 4,000, in verse 26 of chapter 15, I'm sorry, in verse 35 of chapter 15, he tells them to sit on the ground. So people point out that what you're seeing is likely the passing of time. So in the spring, there would be lush grass, relatively lush grass to sit on. Later in the year, that grass dries up and it's, it's no longer something comfortable to sit on, so it's just the ground. So the passing of time is being reported in the Gospels. It's often hard to keep track of how much time is passing. 
Because the Gospels focus on the last week of Jesus' life, and we're going to see that even in this Gospel. But here in this passage, Jesus says and does something that is remarkably perplexing. In Matthew 15, 24, in response to this woman, he, or actually in response to the disciples, he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in response to her coming and prostrating herself on the ground and begging for help, Jesus' response is to look at her and tell her that it's not right to throw the kids' food to the dogs. Ouch. And people have tried to take the sting off that in every which way you can. The bottom line is, he uses an analogy, he uses a metaphor, and she knows exactly what part of the metaphor refers to her. How could Jesus be like that? What's oh, insulting, demeaning? We're going to get back to that. What is going on here? When you look at most commentaries, I, I frankly think that most commentaries gloss over the difficulties and, and just want to say, well, Jesus here is, is stressing in verse 24, I was son only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus here is simply taking the opportunity to state that uh, he was sent to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, and, and the Jews have priority. Okay, and, and it, it is true, brothers and sisters, that there is in the New Testament the revelation that there is a sort of Jewish priority in the gospel, and I think we would be wise to remember that. I mean, earlier in the gospel, in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, when he sends the disciples out, he tells them explicitly, don't go into any Gentile or Samaritan towns, just, just go to the tribes of Israel. Furthermore, in his gospel to the Roman, epistle to the Romans, Paul explicitly says in Romans 1, 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul goes uh, on his first missionary journey. He goes to Antioch and Pisidia. There's, there was two cities named Antioch, the lesser populous one is known as Antioch and Pisidia and he's in the synagogue and he's preaching and they reject it and so in verse 46 he says this to the Jews of the synagogue it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are turning to the Gentiles and then, in Romans 9 through 11, that glorious section of Romans that celebrates God's purposes of election, in chapters 10 and 11 in particular, he humbles us when he reminds us that we should be humble because we, the Gentile believers in Christ, are wild olive branches 
that have been engrafted into the Jewish covenantal vine. So there is a certain Jewish priority. But is what's happening here simply Jesus taking a moment to drive home the Jewish priority? And when scholars say that, they, they conveniently don't say a whole bunch. Namely, remember, when he says he's only going to the house of Israel, well, Matthew 4 records that he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles precisely because there were so many Gentiles. The area was inundated with Gentiles. He left the heart and soul of Judaism, Judea, and goes to Galilee where he makes the bulk of his ministry and that his fame in Matthew chapter 4, it spreads throughout all of Syria, not Jewish, and the Decapolis, and they bring people to Jesus and he heals them without batting an eye. What's more, John chapter 4 records the route Jesus takes when he leaves Judea to go to Galilee. And John chapter 4 says that Jesus had to go through Samaria and he did not. The had to is a missional had to, not a, not, not a, not a transportational had to. And he, Jesus, without batting an eye, stops and talks to the Samaritan woman and preaches for days to the Samaritans. And what's more, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has already interacted with a Roman centurion. And Jesus invites himself to the man's house. The man doesn't ask Jesus to come. And he lauds the centurion with the highest compliment given by Jesus in any of the Gospels that this is the greatest faith he's seen. And he does this without batting an eye. He's already gone into Gentile lands many times, including in Mark chapter 5, Legion. We are Legion, and he casts the demons into the pigs, and they, and they run. He's already said, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there have been many, many, many times and opportunities in the ministry of Jesus leading up to this point for him to stress Jewish priority if that's what he's trying to do here. But he hasn't. He has not so much batted an eye in any interaction with any Jewish or Gentile or Samaritan person at all. But yet here, she's on the ground crying, begging, and he's not even answering her. What is going on? Further, he says to her in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's food and to throw it before dogs. Whoa. 
Remember, the Jews were remarkably nationalistic, remarkably ethnocentric. Look at Luke chapter 4, which records the rejection of Jesus in his hometown. Matthew records that episode, but he doesn't go into all the details. In Luke chapter 4, Luke spares none of it. He, He shares it all. And so Jesus is in his hometown talking to people who have known him since boyhood. And he engages with them. And he says, remember, the word of God says, back in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in the land of Israel. But Elijah didn't go to any of those widows. He was sent to a widow in a village in the land of Sidon. And in the days of Elisha, Elijah's successor, there were many lepers in the land of Israel, but not one of them was cleansed. Instead, it was only Naaman the Syrian. And Jesus simply recounts to them something from the word of God. And these people who have been around him his whole life, how do they respond? With murderous rage. They are about to kill him simply for reminding them of what the Bible said. That's the level of intensity in their ethnocentrism. Indeed, let's just call it their bigotry. That's the level. That they would be murderously angry at this guy who they've known his whole life because he reminds them of what the Bible says. I, I used to be shocked and I would tisk tisk when I was in seminary at Southern. Uh, Calvinism is a hot topic in Baptist churches. And, and there was a guy who was doing pulpit supply. He was fired for reading Romans 9. Shame, shame. Well, these guys were going to kill Jesus for reading from 1 Kings. So I guess this guy got off easy. Right? And so the ethnocentrism of the Jews was profound. And it was common for them to refer to Gentiles by all sorts of names one of which is dogs. And so it's interesting here that Jesus, in talking to this woman, employs the, the, the metaphor of a pet, a dog in the house that's not the worthy recipient of the food that should instead go to the children. And to us, that metaphor doesn't bother. It's a, that's a metaphor. We have pets Most Jews did not have pets like that. Dogs were unclean. So when you read a guy, oh, he's talking about a house pet, so it's not quite as offensive as a wild, it's a dog. And most Jews did not have dogs. No, Gentiles did. I think that's profound. He uses a metaphor that's common in a pagan Gentile household to teach a point 
that stems and flows from a Jewish attitude. That's clever. But in a nutshell, I do not believe that what you see here is the, rate, is the, is the latent racism of Jesus. I don't believe that. Like I said, there's been many, many, many opportunities for Jesus to make points about Jewish priority. There's been many, many, many opportunities for Jesus to him and to Ha if he didn't want the Gentiles having a seat at the table. No, I, I do think that he's talking to this woman, but I really believe he's teaching the disciples. He's teaching the disciples something. Think about the flow of the gospel of Matthew. Okay? It's going to end with the Great Commission. And what does the Great Commission say? Go make disciples of all the houses of Israel. No! Make disciples of all nations. Okay. But the Jews, the disciples were all Jews from infancy had been taught that these nations are disgusting. How do you get people who were steeped in an environment where the Gentiles are nasty to be so committed to ministry to them that they will joyfully go and die amongst them? Just tell them that. Tell them to go. Who cares how they feel? You know what you get when you have that? Jonah. And Jonah was not about to die for the pagans. The flow of the book of Matthew begins with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, we know the Davidic part of that, about the king, the Christ. But the Abraham part, what is the great global promise to Abraham? That in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so we see that this window starts creaking open. And by Matthew 2, we celebrate that the, the Magi came. This is the first occurrence of the Gentiles coming to worship. The first human worshipers of Christ are Gentiles. And we've already seen throughout his ministry, throughout this gospel even, there has been many, many opportunities and engagements where he has engaged with Gentiles. And it's going to culminate, like I said, with the Great Commission to go. And where does this passage then, chapter 15, fit in? Well, they've been conditioned that these people are all unclean. They're nasty. And, and Matthew wants to stress that. So he refers to this woman with an, with an anachronism. You see, nobody in the first century was still using the word Canaanite. Did you know that? 
Alexander put an end to all that. Mark refers to her in, as what she would have and people would have thought of her. She was a Syrophoenician. Uh, she was culturally Greek. And her ethnicity was Phoenician. And the Phoenicians had spread all throughout the, the, the Mediterranean basin. They had gone all over North Africa. Their most famous city is Carthage. Hannibal was, was Phoenician. Um, Tyre, their, their capital city, had, had, had the audacity to resist Alexander. And so he took great delight in destroying it and throwing it into the sea. And you can still see the rubble in the Mediterranean from Alexander's people, tearing it apart stone by stone, throwing it into the water. But he died and they rebuilt. So because she's Phoenician, they want to designate where we're at in this Phoenician kingdom that she come from, Syro, so from that Roman province of Syria. That's what she is technically. But here's the thing. The Phoenician peoples are of Semitic origin. In other words, if you trace their lineage back, they're a Canaanite people group. Now, no one in the first century was using that language anymore. But Matthew does here. Again, because he's wanting to make a point. The disciples had grown up in a culture that said all these dirty, nasty Gentiles and Samaritans and all these nasty, nasty people are disgusting and they're dogs. Don't even be around them lest you get contaminated by their presence. And Matthew wants to drill, that, drill down on that. This woman's a Canaanite. The, the very epitome of what you would think of as someone who is hostile to the plan and purposes of God has absolutely no legitimate place at all completely without hope, completely degenerate, just terrible. The worst of the worst is what's conjured up by this word. And Jesus is saying this right on the heels of the episode that had happened just before. I want you to look back at Matthew 15, 11 to 20. And confronting the Pharisees with their religious externalism, their religious formalism, Jesus then, after he repudiates and tells people, do not even follow these people, they're blind guides, he then talks about the heart. And what defiles you? And how we are so prone to hypocrisy, even though every religion and every denomination and everybody hates hypocrites, we all struggle with it. Because hypocrisy lets us deceive ourselves into thinking that we are okay, that we are fundamentally not that bad, and that it's the outside stuff that will get us, and so we've got to guard against it. And so we put up a pretense of good behavior. And Jesus has said, no, no, no. Your hearts are what's the problem. 
Your hearts are corrupt. And if the heart is corrupt, then the source of defilement is not those out there and that which is there. It's, it's what's in here. It's, I'm my own problem. And so Jesus wants to show that contrary to the way they were raised, it's going to be possible even throughout all this pagan region because after this thing with the woman, he spends the rest of this chapter amongst pagans. I hope you realize that. That Mark specifies after this he goes up there and he goes through the land of Sidon and he comes down the side of the, of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis. He remains in Gentile pagan lands for the rest of this chapter. The 4,000 who are fed, pagans. It's not until the end of the chapter when he finally goes back to the land of Israel. And he's going to make a point about the true source of defilement and how because of that you can find people and minister to people and God can do a work even amongst the most defiled. So, this isn't racist Jesus. It is Jesus the provocateur using a highly sensitive moment to challenge his disciples, to get them further along the path that they're going to need to be so that they can function as his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but in Samaria and in all the earth. That when we think of defiled people, don't think of skin color or race or background or ethnicity. You think of the orientation of the heart. That's the first half. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you so much for what you are teaching us. Lord, we each come to the table with many preconceptions with which we have been raised and reared. Some of them are okay, but some of them are in the way. Lord, help us to conform all of our thoughts, all of our aspirations, all of our expectations on what your word teaches us. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.